Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, this podcast episode is brought to you by our sponsor, St. Gaster. So are you looking at getting your product into the hands of the right people, the people that are going to absolutely love it? Did you know that podcast advertising is literally 4.4 times more effective than the traditional display type of advertising? So if you're looking at really using podcast advertising, you may want to connect with Sencaster. So they've created this thing. It's called the Sencaster Podcast Marketplace, where you can connect as a brand or a company with the right type of creators. And again, you know, via Sencaster, you can connect with people like myself, where essentially we are putting ads of the brands and the companies that we absolutely love. So again, if you are interested in doing this, just go to send.ai forward slash dealmakers1, and that is a number one. And again, the team at Sencaster will be able to guide you in the right direction. Alrighty, hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I am very excited about the founder that we have today with us because he has been around the block quite a few times. I think that we're going to be learning quite a bit on finding the right partner, on thinking about fundraising, thinking about the market, building, scaling, financing, exiting, I mean, all the above. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Jason Smith. Welcome to the show. Alejandro, nice to be here. So Jason, let's do a little of a walk through memory lane. So uh, how was life growing up in Toronto? <laughs> it was good until I left and went to Vancouver, and then it got even better. <laughs> That's amazing. Like, what, 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 what's the difference really between Vancouver and, and Toronto? You know, I love Toronto. So Canadian, born and bred and grew up in Toronto. Love the city. It's an amazing city. Vibrant tech scene there. But when you're an outdoors person and you get a taste of what Vancouver can be like with the mountains and the ocean and no snow in the winter and the Pacific Northwest joy, it's, it's hard to get back to Toronto. So what lured me to Vancouver was uh, university. I came out here for um, my undergrad in business at UBC. And then when we finished that, we decided to start a company because if you didn't start a company at that time, you were lured back to Toronto where most of the jobs were, or the Bay Area where most of the jobs were in tech. So we ended up starting a company and that, that entitled me to stay in Vancouver, which is, uh, it's just a fantastic place to live. And at this time, I mean, it was really the early days of the internet. So you got the Netscapes of the world. So I mean, what a what a time to be alive, no? So how was how was it to be, you know, in the middle of everything? You know, it was. It, it, yeah, it, I'm certainly dating myself here. There, I don't know how many of your listeners are actually going to remember Netscape, but that was that was the cold hard reality when you were kind of. I was geeky enough. My friend was even geekier that we played in multi-user dungeons and had some exposure to the early internet and absolutely in awe of the fact that I could talk to what I thought was a Swedish girl, maybe on a chat forum and uh, back in the day. And it was probably a dude now that I, now that I know what the internet was about, but it was, it was, uh, it was just enlightening to be able to do something like that. And so in awe of what the internet could be, and as the web kind of emerged and Netscape came online and internet explorer and the battles, we thought we need to be, and we need to be in this. And so we decided to start a company did all the wrong things. You know, I started with two of my best friends. We had no money. We put $5,000 into a pot, bought a couple of Macs and put a shingle and said, let's see if we could build a, at the time, a services business. 
not knowing that you weren't supposed to go into business with your friend and and not uh, not do it without any money. But hey, you know, first company, first exit, no? So not bad. Yeah, it worked out. It worked so, out. Again. So so how was that exit? Like, I mean, what the I'm sure that going through the acquisition process gave you to a certain degree the, the visibility into the full cycle, into the fact that it's possible and that you can do it. So what, how, how would you say, you know, that, that process and that experience was for you? Actually, it's a great point on the psychology of it. So um, when you don't know better, it's an advantage. Some level of naivete helps. So we came out and just said, let's just go talk to folks about this thing called the web. And people needed, at the time, websites, like literally massive companies, like Verizon didn't have a website. So we were in those early days of pitching people to say, we could build that for you. And uh, when you don't know better, you call into VPs and tell them, even though you were 21, that you knew and understood the web and they were old and they didn't. And um, and it worked. And one thing led to another. You get one break of a client. I mean, you know, there, there was all the hardships in the beginning. Like we went through six months with no business. Nobody would listen to us. And then all of a sudden, month seven you get a client that's a big one that leads to the next client that leads to the next client. And ultimately it turned into a hundred person company that then gave me the confidence to believe that you could do and build a business. So uh, rightly or wrongly, I came out of that experience exiting to a large telco in Canada called Telus that you could build a business and you could do it uh, on a bootstrap way and actually create quite an impact. And a lot of it was just heads down crank and not knowing any better that you weren't supposed to do it was somewhat helpful. Now, in this case, I mean, the exit was in the double digit millions. Uh, but, uh, but, but for you, what it led was to another experience, you know, your, your second road. I mean, as they say, uh, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. So on the first day, go around, you had the opportunity of really tasting success. And on the second time around, you know, you had the opportunity of tasting learning. So, uh, so how was the second go go at it? If by learning, Alejandro, you mean humbled? Yes, I definitely <laughs> tasted humble right. pie. Yeah, you come out of your first one and it and it worked, right? And so you don't know any better than than it worked. And so, like here we are in our twenties, we had millions of dollars. We thought we were really smart and that we'd figured something out. And then you recognize a lot of it, there's a lot of luck and there's a lot of timing and there's a lot of things that need to come together that frankly are out of your control to make your business work. And I didn't know that going into it. The second business was instead of two of my university buddies, it was a couple HBS grads. So it was Bay Area based. We were, this is dot-com era. We were pitching for you know $20 million on the back of a PowerPoint, leveraging their Harvard Mafia connections to try and get all the right VC introductions. And it was, it was group buying um, on the internet. So it was back in the days where we thought uh, everybody wants to buy, I don't know, that chair that you're sitting in. Everybody, we, we could find 50 of us to go convince a supplier to sell us that chair for maybe 10, 20% off. Group buying, that was the concept. Um, but it was back in the days pre-social graph. And uh, when you try something before the market is ready, you are humbled by the reality of timing the market. In this case, there was no social. It was all email to convince people to sign up, to join and group buy something. And that was just a very ineffective way of doing it. We also you know, picked the wrong categories. There was tons of execution challenges. Uh, but compared to Groupon, who came along later and said, let's focus on nail salons, not on chairs or electronics. Let's not compete with Amazon and Walmart there. Let's find the services pieces and give those, those small retailers an outlet to be able to provide discounts and people can group buy that. They crushed it. Like Groupon was one of the fastest growing companies of all time, and they did alongside the social graph. So 
despite being kind of in awe of what, you know, a Harvard Mafia connection could get you in terms of introductions, absolutely humbled by the reality of missing timing and some execution, but missing timing very much in the market when you're too early, no matter what you do, you're going to miss it. If you're too late, no matter what you do, you're going to miss it. So there's, there's an opportune time with market forces that you need to get into something. Now, obviously, dealing, everyone talks about dealing with success and how great it is, but not a lot of people, you know, really are able to open up about, you know, dealing with, with, with a turnout of events that was completely unexpected. So in your case, I mean, you went from, you know, really hitting it out of the park on the previous company and now on this company, dealing with the reality that it did not unfold the way that you had hoped for. So how was that for you? Yeah, that's a great question. The psychology of it, the dynamics of it. So I think, again, I was I was lucky. The first company, I was naive enough to go into business with my friends without funding and just it worked. The second business, I didn't even think about. I just thought, of course, it's going to be successful. So jump right into it and go. Had I thought about my reputation, had I thought too much about, mm, I don't want to script the next thing. I don't want to be seen as a one hit wonder. I might not have done it. And then I think you you get caught and frozen. Like, ah, I have to rethink and overthink each opportunity that comes my way. In this case, because I did it and failed, you're just in it. All of a sudden you realize that, hmm, what are the reasons why the other one succeeded? And you take a hard look at that, recognize timing, recognize luck, recognize that you can earn some of that luck, but there's a lot of luck involved in figuring out your business at that time. So um, I think my psychology in the beginning, it was damaging. And then turned into a strength where uh, I recognized that a lot of it was out of my control, that it wasn't necessarily me, that I would execute again against something else. And it could be successful based on the right alchemy of timing and people and funding, and that I should just get after it and try and find the next thing right away instead of being frozen. I have a number of entrepreneurial friends that, you know, they were successful the first time and they kind of froze for the next one. They didn't want to have the next one fail. And it kind of precluded them from jumping forward the way they did in the first one. So in my case, again, naively, because it was a pretty quick failure, I recognized that um, it wasn't all me and that I could just get on back on the horse and try again. So into now, the third one. Yeah, I know. And, and we'll talk about it because really cool what you guys are doing now. In your case, what you did after is you did a little bit of angel investing. Then you you know helped uh, you know uh, uh, another another bunch of organizations to really um, you know, get their stuff together, you know, and you did it successfully. But one thing that I thought it was really interesting in your case is that at a, at a certain point, you decide to, you know, get your kids out of school and just travel the world with your family. You know, one of the things that, that I love about people that, that have that opportunity that you had of traveling the world is that you get to experience different cultures. And to a certain degree, that opens up the way that you look at things and your perspective. So how do you think that traveling around the world for a year impacted you? Oh, wow. Yeah. That, so let's skip the five companies I've been involved with and just focus on that. I'll tell everybody, you know, cut out and do a gap year, especially if you have a family and take them off grid, get them out of their comfort zone of where they're at and um, take them around the world to different cultures. So you know, look, my, I turned 40. Um, I was four businesses in before starting my fifth business. I wanted to make sure I had a reset the previous business, which we'll get to. I know vision critical, like it was, it was heavy. You know, you're working 12, 13 hour days, um, nonstop, like six, seven days a week. And I missed a lot of bed tuck-ins. And so there I was 
having you know kids that were born when I started that in that company, and then they were seven and eight when I looked around and said, I need to connect with them again. I happened to turn 40 at that time too. So you kind of look forward, you look backward. It's not a magic birthday, but it, it forces you to have some introspection, I find. And so I decided to, yeah, just, uh, just quit my job. My wife quit her job. We bought four round the world plane tickets. We pulled our kids from school and we went to 13 different countries, including Egypt in the middle of the revolution. And the thinking was, how do we get our, our kids were growing up, you know, with a bit of a silver spoon. They were talking about who had the better, more comfortable theater lounge amongst their friends. And I was very perturbed and just and, and uncomfortable with that. So bring them on the road and um, having experiential travel, I'll call it. This wasn't staying at Four Seasons and fancy places. This was trying to, you know, rent small places, VRBOs and and live for a year in a relatively inexpensive way. But you're going like we started in Croatia, then we went to Turkey. And so they're hearing the call to prayer for the first time. And they're saying, what is that? So for me, it was experiencing the world through my kids' eyes, reconnecting with my family. My wife had to get used to now somebody that was full-time back in the family. So, And you're with each other 24-7. So three meals a day, nonstop. There's no escape. You have to figure out how to work together as a family. So not only do you see the world, but you figure out a cadence that works well with you, your kids, your wife as a family. And so to me, it, it became the the foundational connection that we've built our family on and frankly enable me to do this next fifth company because there was you know now a connection that we could go back on and talk about riding camels out of Wadi Rum or in you know the Amazon jungle when there was a spider on your hand and seeing a tarantula come out of his uh, out of their hole you know they, those are things that you can just they're so vivid on your memory stack that you can pull them out at any dinner in the future and reconnect with your family. And uh, when you're entrepreneurs, you're spending a lot of time away from your family. So it's important to have those quick connects. And it's really hard to do that on grid. So I encourage everybody to get off grid and try that. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. I gotta tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard and already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. Now, in your case, you know, before you got started with Clue, you 
play the advisory role with investment banking uh, operations and and so forth. But you actually took 500 coffee meetings before, you know, even starting a club. Yeah. So, so I guess, you know, especially for the people that are listening that are now thinking about partnering up with someone or, or how to deal with people. I mean, when you take 500 coffees, you get to, you get to really, you know, experience human beings. So, so what did you learn? What was, you know, your three biggest lessons from those 500 coffees? Well, I'll provide a bit of perspective on it because I have a bit of a theory if you're thinking about starting a company of how to approach it first, you know, and this is me coming back from this trip around the world, knowing that I wanted to start my fifth company and get involved with, you know, something new and it's all consuming. And I had a number of ideas when I came back, 17 different ideas. And so I needed to wheel those down into something. I got it down to maybe five. And the coffee meetings were a way to kind of like streamline those ideas and then find which you had the deepest conviction around. So I went into those meetings. I call them like smart person meetings and 500 was excessive, but I had the financial flexibility to be able to do that for a full year before starting, you know, 100. A hundred smart person meetings are the best way to know if you truly have conviction over an idea and you need to start every meeting with this. I need you to tell me honestly how stupid this idea is, where the challenges are, what I'm missing, because I'm going to spend the next 10 years of my life chasing this. And you could save me a lot of time if you tell me how stupid it is. Because nobody wants to tell you your baby's ugly. Nobody wants to tell you that that idea is stupid. There's nothing in it for them. So you need to give them the permission to be able to, to beat up your idea. And you'll walk out of those meetings with new insights, new areas to investigate, and you're going to go and look at those areas that were gaps, and you're going to come back with either more conviction or less conviction around your idea. And you'll walk into the next meeting, then ready for an answer for that to be challenged, and it might reveal new information. And again, it's kind of, I call it repeat layers of conviction or uh, break apart where you're going to realize that it's not the idea that you should be chasing. It's not something that you keep scratching and go, there's deeper there, there's more there, there's something there. Um, and if it's not the case, then you should walk away. Because these are ideas that you need to go into with a decade framework, not a one year, get some money, let's see if we can exit. I think of like what I'm doing with Clue is my life's work. I want to spend the next two decades on building an enduring company. And so if you can short circuit that next decade with 100 smart curve person meetings with your deepening conviction or not, it's the best use of time you could possibly do. I also did some some vetting of what I thought could be my next co-founder at the same time. So looking, I'm a business person, so I was looking more for the technical co-founder. So those 100-person meetings, technical co-founder vetting and finding and convincing and conviction setting on whether or not truly I wanted to do Clue. So in terms of finding the co-founder, I mean, what are some of things to look for? Yeah. So I, I had, um, so trust, I'm going to say is the number one thing. I mean, clearly you need competence in whatever the complementary areas that you want. So if you're the technical founder looking for the business and go to market person, you want to complement that vice versa in my case. So um, the challenge with finding a great technical co-founder is anybody who is strong technically could either do their own thing or has, you know, massive million dollar jobs in front of them opportunities. So you are, your first test is, can you convince somebody to do the vision that you have, or at least co-shape that vision that you've initially got? And that's, that's a tall order for technical co-founders that can build things on their own. And so you spend a lot of time meeting people and trying to assess their ability, but also seeing if they're you know, passionate about the idea that you're pursuing and can you combine it. 
in my case, I went through a number of people. In fact, I found someone initially before I started Clue officially, worked with them for six months, talked about equity splits, how we would kind of co-found it, what we would do side by side working for six months, side by side, me paying him, very talented uh, engineer, um, probably 12 years into his career. And um, and then we worked something out on a Friday and thought we'd had it dialed. And on Monday, he comes in and tells me after six months of working together, I'm leaving to New Zealand for three months and I'm leaving in um, four weeks. And I thought, that why, why wouldn't you tell me that as we're working side by side for six months and negotiating equity and starting a company? And um, he said, oh, well, I think I did that like six months ago. You don't remember. And it's one of those things where when you're desperate to start your company and you finally found the person that you think is great and it's working pretty well and they're really smart, then can you look past that or not? And I think it's a moment you have to look in the mirror and ask about trust. If you can't trust your co-founder the way that you, you need to trust your partner in life, if you can't trust them, you will doubt everything from there on in. So when you come into a difficult situation in the future, you'll be like, is there something they're not telling me? And you can't go forward building a massive business with that background seed germ out of an idea. It becomes toxic. So, um, you know, what I thought was we'd figured out a handshake, cheers, beer on Friday to this news on Monday, shut everything down on the Wednesday and put it on a shelf for a year and um, did a couple other advisory pieces and then ultimately found my current co-founder, Sarathy, where it's been magic since day one. And why Clue? I mean, you had obviously quite a bit of time to really think, uh, you know, this idea through. So why why did you think that Clue was the idea you, that you had to go for? Yeah, it came from an experience at my previous company. So at Vision Critical, we, you know, we built that company from eight people to five, 600 people. It was competing in the customer intelligence kind of survey space against Qualtrics. And you're starting to build a category there with online communities, online surveys, um, it was relatively new. There was a lot of offline research being done at that point and certainly not communities of people that you could go back to and repeat conversations with. And when we were doing that, I realized that my salespeople were pitching increasingly educated prospects that were telling us more about the competitors than, than we knew. And it was embarrassing. And literally, I had prospects go, well, I don't know, that competitor does that really well. You're telling me they don't. That's odd mitigating trust. And I thought, this is this is silly. We need to know what our competitors are doing much better than winging it. And with 100 salespeople scattered in the world, I knew that problem was exacerbated beyond the ones that I was seeing. So I, um, I asked our product management team to put together a fantastic wiki. And uh, they did that. And it was killer for two weeks. And then it got out of date. And then nobody went to it. And then I think I just said, this is this is a problem that needs to be solved. 100 smart person meetings later, got into it and said, I think there's a number of dovetailing trends that make it now the time to chase ML, natural language processing, and what was happening there to get insights from unstructured data was a trend that was happening. More and more competitors, like you looked at the MarTech stack, it was, what, a couple hundred in 2015, and it's like over 10,000 now. So every category was getting more crowded, more and more competitors prospects way more educated, doing all their research ahead of talking to a salesperson. So the dovetailing trends just made it obvious to start this company now. And I think it'll be it'll be as obvious as as you know video on the internet. It's unreasonable to think that every company in the world um, wouldn't have an understanding of their competitors. Every company in the world has three things in common. They've got employees, they've got customers, and they've got competitors. And there's lots of software. 
for employees and for customers, but there's really nothing for competitive understanding. And yet those competitors never go away. They're constantly adapting and constantly changing. So the vision for Clue was simply, how do we bring all of that knowledge of what your team internally has about those competitors and what the web knows into one central single source of truth so that you can figure out how to outmaneuver them? And how do you guys make money? Yeah, it's SaaS products, so we charge by user and uh, mix up competitor and user, but effectively by user and um, it's SaaS on a monthly billing. And in terms of uh, capitalizing the business, how did you guys go about that? Yeah, well, because uh, because it was my fifth company and my co-founder, um, he he was heavily involved in the open source world. Um, he was on a scholarship to uh, University of Michigan to do his PhD in computer science and got involved in co-writing an open source world um, language called uh, Perl back in the day. Became very well known. Also was chief technologist of a 5,000 person company called Sophos and wrote a program to separate relevant mail from irrelevant mail like this um, software product and anti-spam that 100 million people use. So he's a bit of a tech gun. And then I'd done a couple things on the on the business side. So we were in the fortunate position when I started Clue that I could put a deck together and say, this is what we're going to do. And we got a million dollars in angel funding on the back of that deck. Um, but what I tell a lot of founders is, if you haven't done something before, you can't do that. And any story you hear about people getting that done, forget it. You got to focus on traction. We had spent you know 20 years building credibility that we could do something. And so that enabled us to get a million dollars in the pot and basically build what we promised to build and uh, or at least the shell of it. And that led to our first institutional round, a three million round that Omer's led. And that was back in 2017. So and then we had, I think we had like 50K in ARR back in that time. It was very early, but we had you know, a big client in Dell that was believing in us and starting to grow with us. And then, um, and then it was three years later, and actually we did, we raised our A round, a $50 million A that David Sachs and um, Kraft Ventures led at like the height of COVID. I literally kicked off on Monday, the whatever it was, the 20th. Um, and um, it was back when all the VCs were struggling to figure out how to use Zoom, let alone actually fund companies on Zoom. So we were super early. <laughs> and it was awkward because the company was kicking ass. And what I thought were two VCs that were going to fund it were like, well, no, 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 this is going to be a disaster. In COVID, we're not doing anything. And that was short lived. And um, within six weeks, we had three term sheets and closed a $15 million round with Kraft. Um, and then last year, uh, we had Tiger and Salesforce. Tiger led the round, a $62 million round in our B. And so now heavily capitalized, strong balance sheet going into maybe what looks like turbulent times. Um, we're 3x more funded than anyone else in the category and think think we've got a shot. And uh, it's actually, Alejandro, one of the lessons I learned from my previous business that was undercapitalized at Vision Critical and saw a company called Qualtrics kind of race past it when they took $70 million in funding from Sequoia, that funding can make a difference in attracting the right clients and creating the momentum for employees. And, um, and so we were more aggressive with Clue than I was with Vision Critical our lead is now what it's called in my previous business. So I guess for the people that are not that good at math, what is then the total amount they raised for Clue? 81 million US. Got it. Now, in terms of the, I would say, let's talk about vision here. So you were, you were alluding to before. So imagine you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of Clue is fully realized. What does that world look like? Every company has a clear lens into what their competitors are doing 
personalized for each division. Salespeople have the content that they need to answer, how do I compare? How do you compare to competitor X, Y, and Z? A customer success person can sniff that a competitor is sneaking around their client base. They can defend and expand their clients. A marketing team can optimize their marketing relative to what their competitors are doing in the marketing arena. A talent team can hire against certain competitors that are doing a great job of recruiting relative to them. They can understand their cultures and what those people are paid and be able to navigate the complexity of competitive uh, talent. Um, strategy teams can figure out where to build next. Product teams can understand what features have your competitors built that are a waste of time versus worthy of investing. What are table stakes that you must do? What's over-invested by your competitors that people don't care about? So my belief is that every company in the world will have a single source of truth to understand their market and their competitors. And the insights that are gathered both internally and externally will be personalized down to the each division needing and getting what they have for running their particular area of the business more effectively relative to the competition. I love it. Now, for the people that are listening to get an understanding of the scope and size of Clue today, I mean, anything that you can share in terms of maybe like number of employees or anything else that you feel comfortable sharing? Yeah, sure. Yeah, we've got, uh, you know, we've just actually come through 200 employees. So we were about 50 at the start of COVID. We're about 200 now. We expect to add another probably at least 100 in the next uh, 12 months. We've run the company incredibly capital efficiently. So it was one of the attractions, I think, for a Series B um, raise. So um, we've got a strong balance sheet going into the future. Um, we're cresting over 500 clients, large enterprises, hundreds of thousands of users. Um, so we're starting to see real momentum. We're seen as thought leaders. So it's <laughs> it's all of the pieces that are starting to come together um, nicely, and the category is warming up and building. But business-wise, it feels like it feels like everything is coming together now, and we continue to double and triple each year. Now, imagine if I put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time. I bring you back in time where we're still in that dot-com, you know, craziness era, everything looking great. You're now thinking about like what you're going to be building to be part of that movement too. And you have the opportunity of having a chat with your younger self, with that younger Jason. And you're able to give that younger Jason one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now after you know being involved with five companies? Well, just one? There's a litany. That hey, stupid man. young Jason Smith. I'd have a, I've had a long chat with him, Alejandro. One, <laughs> give, give us one and one bonus one. <laughs> okay, that sounds good. So one of the things that I would tell that young Jason Smith is think way bigger than what you're currently thinking. And I think that is one of the challenges when you're young, you know, maybe a company in your local arena like we were in Vancouver, so a a you know a, a, a the hydro company in in British Columbia was like a big deal. We should have been thinking about AT and T, you know, having our services. We should be thinking way bigger. We should be thinking, why can't it be us to actually dominate a global position? And I think that's one of the things. You come out and you think everybody is older, wiser, smarter, better funded. Can't be you. So you need to look at yourself in the mirror and go, it can be. Just chase it. Think bigger. You're going to spend the same twelve hours a day that you're spending no matter what. So might as well chase something big and see if it works. So that would be the first piece of advice. The other piece of advice that I give uh, Jason is a lot of the culture imprint is going to come from how you react as a founder 
to situations early on. You're not going to probably perfectly define your culture, even if you put up some values on a wall. The values come from how you approach every decision and how people see you interpret those decisions. So where you sacrifice your integrity on one thing and maybe white lie on something, people will see that and that becomes part of your culture. If you are not speaking to people directly about an issue and instead actually talking around their back and being more polite instead of being direct, that'll be your culture. So just recognize that everything you do as a founder is magnified and creates the cultural DNA, the imprint by which you're going to establish your company culture in the future. Wow. Very profound, Jason. And for the people that are listening, you know, for them to be able to reach out and say hi, what is the best way to do so? Yeah, I'm, I'm um, at Jason S on Twitter. I'm slash one more Smith on uh, LinkedIn, but just look at Jason Smith clue. There's a couple Smiths out there. So uh, we're, you're going to have to put in clue with a K and, and find me on LinkedIn. Amazing. Well, Jason, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. It has been an honor to have you. Pleasure. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.